The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. My name is Paul. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Heritage. We're very glad you're worshiping with us on this first Sunday of 2024. We are in the book of Daniel, back in the book of Daniel. Uh, We are calling this series, we've sort of shifted the name, I'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. Uh, We we, we called this series Kingdom Come, up through chapter 6. Now as we begin chapter 7, we have changed the name of this series, but it's the same series. We're calling it Coming King, I'll tell you why here in a few moments. So if you you brought a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning, we're looking through verses 1 through 8. As you turn in there, uh, you know, Becky and I, we decided on the day after Christmas that we wanted to go on a little hiking trip. And so, so my wife, who is wonderful and joins me in these winter trips, she joined me and we went up to the backside of Mount Ashland. It was so fun. We, we sat in our living room for a day or two and we were talking about this trip. It was exciting. For me, it was exciting. I, I don't think it was exciting for Becky, but she pretends for me. And we're, we're talking about, you know, winter camping. I have this new, this new winter tent. We have all the gear, and we were talking about the views and seeing Mount Shasta from the top of Mount Ashland and talking about the foods that we were going to eat and how we were going to hike in, and it was going to be fun and wonderful. And it was really easy to have that conversation uh, in a controlled environment where we have a fire crackling in our fireplace, controlled heat, thick walls, that whole deal. Well, then Becky and I decided to go on the trip, and we were met with gale force winds. Do you remember the windstorm here the day after Christmas? We were in a tent. And it was like just, just ripping this tent, my brand new winter tent. I'm like, please don't rip. And the winds were just screaming across the tent. My wife's laying there in her zero degree bag, looking at me with disdain in her eyes. Like, what have you led me to? Just kidding. She was very sweet. But I'm laying in my tent and the wind is just, you can't sleep when your tent's just being rattled by the wind. And the, the tent stakes got pulled out of the ground because there was no snow in the middle of winter. So I had to get up at two in the morning in my undergarments and run around with rocks and try to restake our tent as the wind was blowing. Meanwhile, I looked over at the fire that I thought I had kind of let burn out, but the wind had kept it burning and just sparks blowing across the mountainside. I'm like, I don't care. You can burn down now. And I'm going back in my tent. And in my tent, I'm so tired. My back hurts. I'm cold. I can't sleep. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this seemed like a much better idea from the inside of my warm home. I tell you that story because about six months ago, I made the decision to preach Daniel. We talked about it as a staff. We, we, we thought, talked about the, the, the benefits and the challenges of preaching Daniel. And preaching through the first six chapters was wonderful. But over the last several weeks, as I fixed my eyes on the second half of this book, uh, I, I sort of feel like I'm in a tent on the side of a mountain. The wind is howling. The stakes have come up. And I'm questioning my decision to preach this book. The wind of apocalyptic literature has made me feel a little bit unstable. Uh, and, but uh, truthfully, it's, it's a... We are about to enter into um, a very difficult bit of biblical text. Uh, we're, we're coming into the second half of Daniel, and, and we're going from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool immediately. We're going from simple mathematics to complex algebra in a verse. And the shift happens so quickly. It, which makes the book of Daniel really, if you're familiar with this book, it really feels like two books in one. The first half, narrative, filled with wonderful stories that we all sat under over the last 13 weeks. Uh, it talks about Daniel and his friends living in exile in Babylon, the story of these men making their home in Babylon, having a word for the world. Um, and then, as we wrapped up chapter 6 in December, on December 10th, took a little three-week break, This morning, as we open up our book, we're going to see that this book is drastically different than the one we left. We're going to hear in the words of Daniel, the author of this book, the tone and the emphasis has changed as this book switches from narrative, which tells a story, to apocalyptic literature. It's a story, it was a story that told us about something that happened in history But now the terrifying visions that we read about in the book of Daniel speak of and reveal future truths of things that will happen, or at least to Daniel, the original author, future things that were to happen to him and his people. We're going to notice that the author Daniel, he goes from writing in third person through the first six chapters to now writing in first person in the second half. We're going to notice how the book goes from seeing 
pagan kings receiving visions from God and dreams from God to Daniel, the Israelite exile, receiving visions and dreams from God. And the visions that Daniel receives are much more terrifying and more elaborate than the ones that the kings received in the first half of the book. We're going to notice in this book as we begin to pick up in chapter 7 how Daniel goes from being the one who had the answers who could provide interpretation of these divine dreams to these kings. And now in the second half, he's the one who needs someone else to provide divine interpretation for the dreams he himself is dreaming. A significant shift in this book. We're going to see a shift in timing. We'll get into that here in a moment. Let's read it. Daniel 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. It was different from all the beasts that were, here, that were, that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in its horn, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Well, that's pretty much self-explanatory. I think I can just head home now. I think we've accomplished our task here today. No, this chapter goes on. We're, we're, we're going to preach chapter 7 in three weeks. I, I'm going to preach the next two sermons in this text. and We're going to preach it. It's, it's, it's one story, but we decided to break it up into three weeks. So if you read ahead, you're going to read that the vision continues. And Daniel's given this vision of, of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming on clouds in this, 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 in this other kingdom that's going to come and going to obliterate the, the earthly kingdoms. And you're going to read how Daniel doesn't know how to interpret the dream. And so he receives interpretation of the dream. And we're going to read through this whole chapter. And at the end of the chapter, we're going to read how Daniel is just terrified by what he has seen. Terrified. And so today, as is, is we, is we shift our focus to this, we changed our branding of the series to Coming King. And, and because the book begins to shift, is, is the author, Daniel, is given revelation from God about what it's going to look like when his king comes. And, and we see in the, in the imagery that we, can we put the imagery up, the, the imagery of the logo, there we go. We can see how the king is looking forward, and, and the idea of Daniel 7 through 12 is the forward-looking truths, the forward-looking promises of God to bring his king, his, his king to establish his kingdom forever. And we're going to look at these these prophetic, apocalyptic visions that speak of the future promises of God as he speaks to and through the prophet Daniel. But let's just be honest. This is challenging text. I've told several of you this morning as you walked in, if I'm honest, I have, um, I feel so, like, when you work on a sermon, you know, you spend 20, 30 hours putting together a sermon, you read scholars and listen to preachers and you're sharpened by your colleagues and with humility you try to work through the text and put together a cohesive, a coherent teaching that's true to the scripture, that is gospel-centered, that will edify the people of our church. And you do all this work and you're in your office for hours and you print off this and you probably heard me say this before and I stick it in my Bible and I run across the road and I come walking here and I, I plop this transcript down and it just feels so pathetic. It just feels so pathetic. I, I look at what God has revealed and the way Daniel tried to put words to the, the revelation of God and it's so much bigger than us. And so my hope is that through humility and the help of God by his spirit, we can 
encounter God in a real way as we preach through this text and through the rest of these six chapters. Amen? Would you pray with me? Oh God, we ask as we gather here this morning and as we open up this book, God, uh, we ask that you would meet us like you do. We know you do, God. And so, so would you give us collectively as your people humble hearts to hear and receive the truths that you are speaking through this text today and and God, would you give me the ability to just get out of the way? God, somehow, someway, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak through me into the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people of this church? And together, may we grow and be sanctified, and may we worship you as a result of the truths we are sitting under this morning. We need your help. Uh, God, we need your help. I confess to you inadequacy and fear of man and all those things that can kind of crop up in moments like this, but God, we know that, that you're present here with us. And so would you give us understanding and insight as we seek to understand what's contained in these eight verses. We love you. We surrender to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Saturday, so eight days ago, I was able to connect with uh, the folks that Becky and I were privileged enough to go to Israel with. And we kind of had a little trip reunion. We went in June. Now much has changed in that land since June. And as we were there at the house, at John and Joan's house here in Medford, we were able to... to, to video chat with our guide, who is this beautiful Christian Jewish woman named Renat. And she was an amazing guide filled with joy. Such a pleasure. And she spoke with us for about an hour over the phone through video chat about the reality of what it's like for her and her people right now with the war waging against Hamas, with many of their sons and daughters in the Gaza Strip, with casualties and the horrors of war unfolding in their midst. She spoke to us, and she is a very faithful woman. Her, her, her faith is it's sort of contagious when you're around her, and I, just see, I could just see in her eyes she's tired, and she's weary, and at one point, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she said something to the effect of like, you know, in the first two, three weeks after October 7th, when Hamas committed those horrific atrocities against 1,300 people, she said, uh, I, I kind of wondered, like, God, what's, where, where are you? Like, how, how are you doing this? Like, why is this happening to us? And as I listened to her talk, it's like, I, I was, and I was thinking of her perspective. She lives on this hill between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem with her beautiful family. And her and many others watched as quite literally beasts rose out of the sea and attacked her and her friends and her family. And I understand, I understand her sentiment. I gather with our high school kids on Wednesday, and we're going to be going through the same text beginning this coming Wednesday with our high school kids, and we kind of just parallel what's being taught at church on Sunday with our high school students. And, um, and we decided to start our study of Daniel 7 through 12 with, let's just look at the gospel, we decided. We, we decided like, and so, so my conviction is, and I think our conviction as a church would be that like the interpretive center of the Bible, like the interpretive center of all of scripture is, is the cross of Christ. It is the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which sort of serves as the gravitational center. So whenever we're reading a text in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's through that lens that we read it. And I wanted our students, as we get into some crazy stuff and some fanciful visions and we see ghastly figures and their symbolism and all the stuff that apocalyptic literature offers, I didn't want us to lose through all of that the, the, the centerpiece of, of, of salvation history which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 6, Paul's great retelling of the gospel, and we reminded students that that is what all this is ultimately about. We understand these texts through that lens, and as I listen to her, we're not talking, and I, I know she knows the answer, but I just couldn't help but just pray, the Lord, just give her eyes to see that in Christ, all these things have been overcome and will one day be done away with. And he'll put all things together. He'll make all things new. He'll wipe away every tear and we'll be in his presence and worship with him for all of eternity. And as I, as I studied the passage and, and as I prepared to teach today, if I could boil down what I believe this text is saying, these eight verses, there's more being said in the book of, of chapter seven as a whole, and we'll get to that in coming weeks. But if I'm just thinking through the lens of the first eight verses, here's the thing I think that God wants us to hold on to today. And I'm gonna say this several times through our teaching. If you wanna write it down, write it down. God controls the very things that actively rise in opposition to him. In other words, God is sovereign over the beasts. God is bigger than the beasts. And I think the thing we're meant to see here today is that God controls the very things that actively rise in opposition 
to him. So let's take a little closer look at the Daniel as a whole, and let's kind of work our vision down, and then we'll journey through these verses. But let's kind of take a bigger perspective again, just to remind ourselves of the book of Daniel, reacquaint ourselves with this text, and, and then we'll get into, I, I have three things I want to share with you as we work through the, the actual eight verses today. But as we know, the Bible comes in different kinds of, of, of literature. And in, in Daniel, we have two. We have narrative and apocalypse. Narrative tells us something that has been seen, something that has happened. Apocalyptic literature is all about revealing. That's what that word even means. Apocalypsis in Greek, it means, the, it means revealing. It means, like, it means something has been, the curtain has been pulled back. It's been unveiled. And so in apocalyptic literature, which we're in today, it's, it's God peeling back the veil. So human eyes for a moment can glimpse and see the spiritual reality behind the physical world. And that's what we're seeing here in the second half of Daniel. I read this week that the simplest definition of the word apocalyptic is revelation, which is why the last book of the Bible bears that name. The genre is an unveiling. It's a pulling back of the curtain on the unseen transcendent world, and in such, it is bringing this present world to an end, and its role in bringing this present world to an end. And so we got to look at some really fun stories for six chapters, iconic stories, biblical stories that we grew up with about lion's dens and giant statues and vegetable diets and fiery furnaces. We got to watch Daniel and his friends do amazing things. We, we saw how God revealed the message to us through Daniel. We got to read this beautiful narrative about what life was like in Babylon and the narrative story of chapter six, it, chapters one through six, it reveals the message of God for the outside world. If you remember, we were looking through Jeremiah 29, how God sent his exiles to Babylon that he might make himself known to these, to these people in Babylon through the witness, the faithful witness of Daniel and his friends. And we see Daniel's preaching. We see the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four, how through the faithful witness of these exiles, God was made known. Now, apocalyptic literature here in the second half of, of Daniel, it's God revealing his message for his own people. And he's speaking to Daniel and through Daniel to the people of God. And it's interesting, there's, a, there's some interesting things when it comes to the Aramaic and the Hebrew in this book because it's written in both languages, but that's a little confusing. But here's something I want to say about apocalyptic literature. It, it, rather than, when we're reading narrative, it's, it's, I was sharing this with our staff earlier this week, it's like, it's like being an archaeologist, if you will. When you're an archaeologist, you have a tool belt that's got all these tools. You know how to use them. You got like a brush and you got like a little, like a little spade and these little things you use. And, and when you're on hard ground, you get down on your knees and you, you, you use your tools to unearth what's there. And, and that's what reading and understanding narrative scripture is like. There's, there's sense and structure. There's discourse. It's, there's tools you can use to make sense of what's there. And that makes sense to my mind. But when we get to apocalyptic literature, I'm borrowing from someone smarter than me when I use this analogy. He said it's as if we're over water now. In the same tools that we use to understand narrative, the first six chapters of Daniel, those tools are of no use now because we're over water. We're not, and we're not looking down, we're looking up to the heavens because these visions come from heaven and, and it becomes very disorienting for us. And so what the author does and what God does in the use of this sort of literature is there, there's this masterful use of pictures. And this is important for us. I mean, I want you guys to finish a phrase for me. A picture is worth... Yeah, right? And so when we come to, to apocalyptic literature, we're going to see all these pictures. We saw four beasts rise out of the sea. There's vivid, ghastly pictures. And so our job as interpreters and Bible readers is to try to understand what is God conveying through these symbols, through these pictures. And it takes so much humility because it's just very difficult to discern how and when to apply the right tools. I'm going to do my best. One person wrote that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced that there are gospel truths here in Daniel 7 in picture form that will be readily understood if we simply take a good look at the movie God has provided. Lots of change here in the pattern. Notice as we see here in the first verse that we are in the first year of Belshazzar. So that's a disruption in the chronology. That takes us back. We read of Belshazzar in chapter 5. So, so even though Daniel in his first six chapters was working chronologically through the different kings of the, of the Babylonian and Persian kingdoms, now we're going back in time. We're back somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5 now in chronology. So there's a change in timeline. 
Um, there's a change in pattern. Daniel is no longer the answer man when it comes to dreams. He has no answers for this dream, so he has to look for interpretation. It goes from third person to first person. The genre changes. There's so much. So as Bible readers, we recognize, okay, something different is happening here in chapter 7. And so, so as we think about, there, there, are, there are many tools, and I'm not going to go through them today, but I'd love to have, if you're interested in this, I would love to have a conversation with you about some tools I'm trying to put in my tool belt when it comes to the, the, the recognizing the use of symbolism and understanding vantage point and, and, and what it means that there's like this recapitulation that happens in apocalyptic literature. I'm, I'm sharpening these tools as, a, as an expositor, trying to keep them in my belt so that I can help us as a church understand. But I don't want you to see me as simply the Bible answer man, because I'm not. I, I, you, you pay me a handsome salary to spend many hours in my week to kind of work through these texts so I can try to teach them in a meaningful way to you. But I want you to be students of the Bible. I want you to read these texts as well along with me. Go ahead, struggle, work on applying interpretive tools as you read through these passages. And now as we get to chapter 7, uh, we have to recognize that like, there's not lots of universal agreement when it comes to apocalyptic literature. There's going to be some differing opinions that exist within the church on how to interpret some of these texts. I'm going to argue for a perspective each week. Jeremy, when he's teaching, he will argue for a perspective with humility. Uh, and if you disagree, we'd love to have coffee with you and, and walk through how you might disagree with our interpretation. But even chapter 7, it is a significant chapter in the whole of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's one of the major, major portions of Scripture. And so we would do really good today and in the coming weeks to try our very best to approach this with fresh eyes, to hear what God has for us. And, and modern commentators generally agree that chapter 7 is the single most important chapter in the book of Daniel. It's sort of the center of the structure of Daniel. I read one uh, uh, a scholar who, who calls chapter 7 the heart of the book of Daniel. And another who said that it would be no exaggeration to say that this chapter is one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. And it serves as a great transition. If Daniel's God was able to do those miraculous things we read about in those first six chapters, he was able to, to give Daniel a, a miraculous interpretation of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He was able to be in the fire with and prevent the fire from having an effect on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was willing to give a right mind to Nebuchadnezzar, pull him up out of the grass, the dewy grass, and put him on his feet. He was able to stop the mouths of lions and preserve Daniel. If this, if, if Daniel's God was able to do these miraculous things, the implication as we get to chapter 7 then is that he also possesses the miraculous ability to predict the future. And what we read in these eight verses and the way in which they predict the next 800 years after Daniel, it's, it's spooky. It's spooky how spot on accurate these prophecies were. So Let's begin by working through, I have three things I want you to recognize today. So what's happening here? Here's the first thing. Let's look at verse 1. Simply write this down. We see that a vision is seen. As we get to verse 1, we see that a vision is seen. I think it's really cool that Daniel anchors his, his story, his, the, the writings here are anchored in history. This isn't some mythology that was sort of born out of the imagination of, of, of the human mind. He, he, he makes sure to tell us, no, in the first year of King Belshazzar, which was like 50, 53 BC, like this happened. It really happened. Daniel's attention to detail put the occurrence of this vision absolutely in dateable history. He saw a dream and a vision as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, as we look at King Belshazzar, as I said earlier, he was this guy who was kind of a... Daniel didn't portray him very positively when we read about him in chapter 5. He's the guy where the hand wrote on the wall, and he was condemned, and he was killed, and that marked the overthrow of the Babylonian kingdom. And, and so this is somewhere before chapter 5, as we see this arrogant, unholy, blasphemous, self-absorbed crony king, this co-regent. Uh, uh, it is during this man's reign that Daniel receives this vision. And again, like I said earlier, this is a stepping back in time. It's no longer in chronological order, but we'll find the second half of Daniel operates chronologically. We'll get to more of that later. And so we see that, that the language is also the language of revealing, isn't it? In our passage, we see on five separate occasions, Daniel saw, verse 1. I saw, verse 2. Then as I looked, verse 4. And after this, I looked, verse 6. After this, I saw. So this is God revealing things supernaturally to Daniel. 
And that's the heartbeat of apocalyptic literature. It's an unveiling. It's revealing of spiritual realities that have yet been obscured by human eyes. And Daniel's able to see it. He's laying in bed, what he later called a night vision. In other words, Daniel had a dream, and vivid images passed through his mind as he was laying in bed. And he got to see the things of God. He got to see the the curtains peeled back, and he got to behold the the spiritual realities behind the, the world around him. And he tells us throughout the scripture what it did in him. He was, it was terrifying and dreadful, verse 7. It, it, was, uh, it caused him to be anxious. His spirit was anxious and his, his head was alarmed, we read in verse 15. His thoughts greatly alarmed him and his color changed. He was so terrified that his face was pale with fear. And so what he did is he received this terrifying vision And so he gets up, he grabs a pen and some paper, and he writes down the substance or the sum of the matter. And now we get to see what Daniel saw. So the first thing, a vision is seen. Second thing, we see that this is a vision of wind and water. It begins in verse 2 as a vision of wind and water. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision and by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, in the Bible, a stirred-up body of water is a picture, it's a symbol of chaos, not just in Daniel, but throughout all of Scripture. It creates a a picture of earth as a tumultuous place where evil rules, a place where evil people act out their evil intentions. And and the text tells us that, that the four winds of heaven were stirring up the chaotic seas. Which leads us as readers, if these winds that are stirring up the seas are coming from the heavens, the assumption is that God here is in control. He's the one that's controlling the things that are happening in the water. The very beasts that rise up in opposition to him uh, is a part of something he is doing. And we see the vivid picture of these four beasts rising up out of the water. If we look through, throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see that... Uh, a body of water is, is like a, a place of chaos. You read in Revelation 21, it's interesting, in Revelation 21, as we're reading this beautiful chapter about the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of the kingdom, chapter 21, verse 1, John, the apostle, as he's receiving revelation, and this is his apocalyptic vision, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Isn't that interesting? So the sea is this picture of the place where the evil rise, where chaos exists, and, and yet we read that it's the four winds of heaven that are blowing over the water. And so with that biblical context, we're, we're meant to notice here that, that God is stirring up the deep as Daniel vision, Daniel's vision begins. So God is doing this, and in so doing, God is controlling the very things that will rise up out of the water and oppose him and his people. Which means that this is significant. And it it goes back to the main argument I shared with you a few moments ago. God is sovereign over the beasts. God is bigger than the beasts. God controls the very things that actively rise in opposition to him. And so, we see a vision is seen. We see a vision of wind and water. And then here we get to the meat and potatoes of the vision, right? We see a vision of four beasts, don't we? We see a vision of four beasts, four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. And the way it unfolds, it seems as if the vision, each of these beasts comes up chronologically one after the other in order. We see a lion with eagle's wings. We see a bear raised up on one side with some ribs in its teeth. We see a leopard with four wings and four heads. And this other ghastly beast that doesn't have any sort of human animal that we can liken it to or any sort of earthly animal that we can liken it to. But this beast has ten horns and then an eleventh horn. And as you read through these four beasts, you know, and as I read different scholars, one of the things I, I did when I began this series in Daniel is I made sure to go out and find scholars who kind of came from different theological camps and I, so I can read a variety of perspective. But really, there's virtually unanimous agreement here among scholars and theologians and historians that these four successive beasts that rise out of the water are symbols of four powerful kingdoms that swept across the known world at the time of Daniel and in the generations to follow. 
as we see these four beasts, we're reminded of that vision that we had back in chapter 2. Do you remember that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, that dream he had in chapter 2 that left him unsettled and he was going to kill all the wise men in Babylon because he couldn't understand neither the content nor the interpretation of the dream? And, and then God allows for Daniel to have this, this supernatural ability to, to not only know the content of Nebi's dream, but to interpret it. And that dream was one of a statue, do you remember? And the head was of gold, and the, 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 the arms and shoulders were of silver, and the torso was of bronze, and the, the, the legs and feet were of iron, and the feet were kind of mixed between iron and clay. And as Nebuchadnezzar saw that, uh, the interpretation that we kind of put forth back in chapter 2 was that those represented the kingdoms from Babylon to Rome Empire that would follow. And so, and I think that's a correct interpretation. And so many, 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 many scholars have said chapter 2 and chapter 7 are, are kind of a, re- a recapitulation. The, the vision that Nebi, God gave Nebi in chapter 2 is being recapitulated, but more is being added now in chapter 7. And that idea of recapitulation is an aspect of, of, of apocalyptic literature. And, and we're learning more here, aren't we, in this second vision that God gave Daniel about these four kingdoms. We got the lion beast with the that would be analogous to the head of gold in chapter 2. This is reflective, and I'm going to make the argument, reflective of the Babylonian Empire, which lasted through about 534 or 538, 539 B.C. And I'm going to make the argument that the bear beast was raised up on one side with the ribs in his mouth. That's analogous to the arms of silver and the shoulders of silver that that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, which was reflective of the Medo-Persian Empire that came in in chapter 5 and killed Belshazzar, and then we see the the Medo-Persian Empire and King Darius in chapter 6. They lasted until about 330 or 331 B.C. And then the, the leopard beast, which is, I think, analogous to the, the bronze torso of the statue. This is the Greek empire led by Alexander the Great, which lasted until about 200 B.C. And then this dreadful beast, this final beast we find in chapter, or verses 7 and 8, with, I think it's analogous to the legs of iron and the feet of half iron, half clay that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, which is the Roman Empire. And that empire lasted far beyond the time of Christ. Now think about this. Daniel received this vision in 553 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar would have received his vision of the statue probably in the uh, upper 500 B.C.s, 585 B.C., something like that. And, and at the time, the, the Babylonian Empire was ruling and reigning for Daniel's or for Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And, and now we're just we're, we're, we're at the very end of the Babylonian Empire for for. Daniel's vision here, and yet it with absolute precision predicts exactly what unfolded on the global stage for the next 700, 800 years. That's why many people have questioned the, the date of the writing of Daniel because they see there's no way that a prophetic vision could be as accurate as this vision was. But it was. Now listen, whether you're in, in chapter 2 or chapter 7, I'm making an argument that I think these these beasts and these metals represent certain earthly kingdoms, but ultimately, right, they're symbols. We, we don't, we don't, they're, they're pictures. We don't ultimately know, I suppose, but they're pointing to something else. Remember, that's a part of apocalyptic literature. It operates in symbols and metaphor, and, and chapter 7 tells us as much, because Daniel has this vision of these four beasts, and he doesn't know what the heck he's looking at. He's so confused by it, and we see all the way in chapter 16 he, he approaches one of those who stand and he, and he asks the truth concerning all of this. He doesn't, Daniel doesn't know what it is that he just saw. And so in verse 17 of our chapter, we'll get into this in coming weeks, this, the one who he approaches says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so we recognize even in this chapter that these beasts are symbolic of kings and kingdoms. It's a symbol meant to be taken figuratively at points to or unveils something yet unknown, a future thing. And so what might be be embedded in these passages that might help us think that that this first beast of the lion with the eagle's wings, what might might there be in the Bible that would help us maybe make a connection to the Babylonian Empire here? Well, number one, the the symbol of the Babylonian Empire was a lion. I got a picture of, uh, of a lion that's currently in a museum in Toronto. There are 120 of these lions on the gates leading into and out of Babylon. A lion was the symbol of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, I've, I heard one scholar this week say if you go to Iraq today, which is in modern day location where Babylon once was, even the symbols in Iraq are lions with wings. And so we see that it's not a hard stretch to say that a lion is a symbol of the Babylonian Empire. 
We read in the second half of verse 4 that Daniel says, as I look, the, the wings on this lion were plucked off, the eagle's wings, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given it. I find it really interesting. If you go back to chapter 4, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar is sharing his testimony about how he lost his mind and then God gave him back his right mind and then he extols the God of Daniel as his own God, which is an amazing chapter. As, 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 as Nebuchadnezzar is writing about the moment that he lost his mind and, and was in this seven periods of time where he was out of his mind in the grass like a cow covered in dew, here, here's, what, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says of his own state during that time. He says... Uh, I was driven away from men and ate grass like an ox. My body was wet with the dew of heaven and my hair grew as long as eagle feathers and nails were like bird's claws. When we see Nebuchadnezzar describing his condition as having the hair as long as eagle feathers and we see other places in Jeremiah where Nebuchadnezzar is likened to a lion by other prophets, it seems pretty clear to me it seems pretty clear to me that this text is referring to the Babylonian Empire. And so then he goes on to say, the prophet Daniel in his vision, he goes on to say that, that this man, after the wings were plucked off, he was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a mind of a man was given to it. Doesn't that sound like the moment when, the mind, when Nebuchadnezzar's mind was given back to him, and his sanity was restored, and he returned to his throne that we read about in chapter 4? So it seems as if that this first beast is reflective of the Babylonian Empire give you some biblical arguments there. Second beast, it seems to reflect the Medo-Persian empire. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told to arise and devour much flesh. I I read one commentator this week that said of the Medo-Persian empire, he said a bear is an apt symbol of this kingdom which was noted for its great size and fierceness in battle. And one side of this bear's rise is risen up. It's bigger, it's stronger than the other side. And history reveals to us that between the, the kind of the, the partnership between the, Medo, the Medes and the Persians, that the Persians were in a position of dominance over media. And it recognizes that, that there was a, an imbalance of power in this empire. As you look at the ribs in the mouth of this bear, it seems as if that reflects the image of the bear devouring, right? And we know that the Medes and the Persians had three significant conquests in their time over Babylon, over Lydia, and over Egypt. And so it seems that this looks, makes a lot of sense that that's what the, the author here is speaking of, of the Medo-Persian Empire, Beast 2. Beast 3 reflects the Greek Empire, this, this torso of bronze. Daniel writes, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And if you think about a leopard, what's a leopard known for? It's known for its speed, and it's known for its ferocity. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a predator of predators. They, they just eat, they're bloodthirsty animals. And when you think about the Greek Empire, you think of Alexander the Great, and two things stand out about Alexander the Great. He was 32 when he conquered, like, the entire Medo-Persian Empire. He, he with, like, in crazy lightning-fast speed, this military leader led the, the conquest of the Greek Empire. And there's this story that, that says after he, after he conquered the, the, the Persian Empire, he, all the way to like the borders of India, he wept because there was no more land left to conquer. He was like this bloodthirsty, super fast-moving, aggressive military leader. It seems as if that's what is being reflected here. And even the leopard has wings, meaning it's, it's not just fast like a leopard. It's got wings. It's moving even faster. And then there's this four-headed nature of this leopard as well. And, and in the Bible... The head signifies the, the government or the kingdoms that, that, that are the governments over a kingdom. And, and is, if you're a student of history, you know that after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four quadrants. So it just, it just makes sense to me as I, as I read this, that that's what these three kingdoms, it seems to reflect historical truth. It seems that's exactly what the vision that God had given Daniel here. And then we get to this final beast, which we make the argument was the Roman Empire. And as we look at verses 7 and 8, I think two, two things stand out. One, it's, 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 it's different than the other three beasts. Daniel says in verse 7 that the, the thing that he saw, this fourth beast, was terrifying and dreadful. And it was exceedingly strong. And we see that more text is given to describing this fourth and final beast. 
We read uh, in verses 7 and 8 that this beast had teeth of iron. I'm mindful of the iron legs that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his statue. It has ten horns. I'm mindful of the ten toes mentioned in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And so if our interpretation is correct, and if this final beast is in fact referring to the Roman Empire, the, the beast is different from the others. It's terrifying and dreadful. I read this week that the Roman Empire was significantly different than earlier empires. It was surpassed, it surpassed all previous empires in power, longevity, and influence. The world had simply never seen anything quite like the power and the dominance of the, of the Roman Empire. And we read that there was these ten horns. So powerful was this kingdom that it had ten horns. In the Bible, horns represent power and authority. And this this fourth beast possessed ten horns. That's five times the normal number of horns. Or, or ten times the normal number of horns if you're into unicorns. Either way. It's a, I got two jokes today. That's the second one. That's all you got. I'm, I'm sorry. But this beast is meant, we're meant to see this beast as exceedingly powerful. And the Roman Empire was exceedingly powerful. And then as we get ahead, what, what are we supposed to else make of these ten horns? Well, we read in Daniel. Verse 24 tells us. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. We, these horns, according to chapter 7, it's also reflective of kings. And in the Roman Empire, historically speaking, of course I'm standing on the shoulders of historians here, from Julius Caesar to Domitian, there were actually twelve Caesars, but two only reigned for a few months. And so it seems as if this could be reflecting that historically as well. And then, gosh, we have this really unique language about this third or this 11th horn that rises up and uproots three of the other 10 horns. And this horn has eyes and a mouth that speaks arrogantly. And boy, that's confusing too. All this is confusing. And and no one really agrees on what that third horn is. Some people say this reflects Antiochus Epiphanes. Some people think it's understood as the future Antichrist. Some people say you can't really make a decision because there's not enough precise data to identify definitively who this 11th horn is. But it's clear whoever this 11th horn is, he'll blaspheme against God. He'll oppress the saints of God. He'll try to abolish the calendar and the law which govern how God's people worship. So that's, that's the vision. Ultimately, there's a lot here that we have to kind of ha- interpret with an open hand, don't we? But one thing I think we can all agree on, and I read this in a commentary this week, the beasts in general, these four terrifying, ghastly beasts that rise up out of the tumultuous sea, in general, these beasts show the present world order as an ongoing state of violence and lust for power that will continue until the final coming of God's kingdom. As we think about bloodthirsty kingdoms and leaders, as we think about terrifying beasts rising out of the sea, metaphorically speaking, it's not hard for us to to lift our noses up from our Bibles and look at the news and see what's happening across planet Earth, even today, whether it be in Israel or Ukraine or Nigeria or wherever. We just see horrible things. And I can't help but notice, you know, the last thing that's said of this, of this beast is that he spoke great things. Other translations say he spoke boastfully, arrogantly boasted. And I, and I, and I've, I just found myself meditating on that a lot this week. And I, and I think about my own tendency or propensity to be um, captivated by a silver-tongued orator. Someone who speaks great things. And how easy it is to be enticed or led astray or captivated or enamored by those voices which speak great things. We're in an election cycle. And Lord knows there's politicians across the political spectrum that speak great things, or so they think. There are influencers and Musicians and actors and Hollywood stars and entrepreneurs and billionaires and famous people and false teachers that speak great things. And so as I see these beasts rising up out of the sea, it's not hard for me to contextualize it to us today. As I see this 
fourth beast, it's not hard to apply that to our modern day context. And we were talking about this as a staff as we kind of reflected on this passage earlier this week. And I was thinking, like, what if God were to do to us what he did to Daniel? Can you imagine right now if by the power of the Holy Spirit, God allowed the veil to be peeled back? As we watch evening news, as we drive down Biddle Avenue, as we watch the local news, as we whatever, as we, as we take in our favorite media, as we listen to our favorite famous figure, fill in the blank, if God just allowed us to, we have our normal day-to-day, we just go through life, what if God by his Spirit said, I want you to see the reality behind what you see? And like he did with Daniel, what if he were just to peel back the veil and our eyes were open to the spiritual, the demonic, the satanic realities of this earthly puppet master pulling the strings of his minions. How shocking it would be for us. I'm sure you've read books like The Screwtape Letters or Ishbane Conspiracy, where you see like these authors, these Christian authors who took a stab at trying to paint a picture for the spiritual realities behind our everyday lives. It's terrifying to read those books. I just... You know, Daniel, think about Daniel. This dude had been around the block, man. He, he was in exile. He was, he was hauled away from home at like 15. He served Nebuchadnezzar. He served Belshazzar. He saw the overthrow of the Babylonians. He served Darius. He was this faithful, faithful man, 70 plus years serving in Babylon. He saw crazy stuff. He stared a lion in the face as its mouth was shut by the angel of the Lord. He was given supernatural vision of what this statue meant in Daniel chapter 2. He watched the, the conversion of the most powerful man in the world who was made to believe he was an ox eating grass, but was given his right mind. Daniel saw amazing things. He saw God do supernatural things that are, just, that are amazing. And yet, when this vision was given to him, he tells us multiple times he was absolutely paralyzed with fear with what his eyes saw. I just try to imagine, what would you and I, how would you and I respond if God, for just a few moments, pulled back the, the veil and we could see the spiritual warfare taking place in our midst right now? As we listen to our favorite politician share their platform, if we could see the spiritual realities behind some of those decisions and policies, decisions that are being made, I just think it would be, I think like Daniel, we'd be so utterly terrified. But then I'm reminded of our argument for today, right? What's our argument today? God is bigger than the beasts. God is sovereign over the beasts, isn't he? he? He controls the very things that actively rise in opposition to him, doesn't he? In fact, we see the language of it in our text. Kathy pointed this out to me in our study on Tuesday. Look at verse 2. Daniel says, uh, the, the, the four winds came from heaven. Okay, so God's doing something here. This is from heaven. Then verse 4 is we're reading of the first beast, this lion that had eagle's wings. Its wings were plucked off. By Who? It was lifted up. By who? It was made to stand on two feet. By who? What about, what about the second beast? It was told, arise and devour much flesh. Who told him? What about the third beast? Dominion was given to it. Well, who gives dominion? I think it's pretty clear. God does. God is in control of the very things that actively rise in opposition to him. And one of the features of is, is crazy and as challenging and as fear-inducing as apocalyptic literature can be, what all of these different authors I've been reading this week have been helping me to understand is that apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is, if anything, it's pastoral. Because you've got to think of the first audience here. This year, these are exiled Jews who've seen their country overthrown, their temple demolished. They've been sent into a foreign land. It's a horrible time for them. They've been given this, this idea through the prophet Jeremiah that there's going to be 70 years and they'll return. But as you know, the history, like, it was long. And God is telling the prophet Daniel through these apocalyptic visions that it's going to be it's longer than 70 years. There is going to be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom that's going to oppress, that's going to bring devastation, that's going to bring destruction to your people. But don't lose hope because as we're going to see next week, there's an ancient of days on the throne who sends the son of man and there is hope of a greater kingdom. There's hope of, a, of an ultimate deliverance. And so this is pastoral. As we read in the text, we're like, these, aren't, these beasts are operating under the sovereign authority of a God who's given them permission to do their things they're doing because our God is a doing things beyond our understanding. I couldn't help but just find myself in these texts about the providence of God. We, we know that all things, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so, like, 
We see global shifts, right? We see wars, we watch the news, we know what's happening globally and, and the beasts rise out of the sea. We see it locally. I was talking with you, Herb, just the other week about some policies that are being handed down by the state house that are abhorrent right now in our state. It's like, God, are you aware of what's happening here? Are you aware of what's going on? Like, but I think we also see it personally, don't we? I don't want to stretch the text too much and allegorize this too much, but if I could just for a moment give me a little bit of grace. If you were to, to kind of just survey the, the surroundings of your life, my guess would be that you're either just coming out of, just heading into, or in the middle of a season in your life where you have seen some beasts, metaphorically speaking, rise out of the water. Some super challenging stuff. Super hard stuff. That maybe, just maybe, you found yourself asking, like, like Renat, my friend Renat, like, God, are you know what's, do you know what's going on here? And if we are his, if we've been adopted into the family of God, if, we, if he is our king and we're under his rule, like, maybe God controls the very things that actively arise in opposition to him. We have, we have reason for great hope. And I, I believe when this first audience was able to process these visions that, that gave them, among many things, that gave them great hope, that God is absolutely sovereign. He's bigger than the beasts. And he's in control of all things. Amen? Father, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, God, that you would just meet us in this place, God. I pray, Lord, that as we think about this passage, Lord, and we know that this is confusing and it's complex and we're talking about global empires from 2,000 years ago and that can be a bit boring and all that sort of stuff. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would just continue to give us opened eyes and softened hearts and, and responsive minds to, to respond in obedient faith to the things you're revealing to us, God. And I can ultimately predict and, and name every way in which you're at work in the lives of the men and women gathered here this morning. But God, you, you, you're, you're working in everybody's life today, whether they realize it or not. And and maybe just maybe this, this spiritual reality is a, is a worship-inducing reality this morning as they meditate on, on the fact that you are sovereign over all things, that you're bigger than the beasts, that you are in control of the very things that actively rise in opposition to you. And so, God, I pray as we prepare our hearts for this communion this morning, God, as we, as we fix our eyes on your broken body and your shed blood and the promise of the cross, this central interpretive truth for all of redemptive history. God, I pray that you would, God, by your spirit, even right now, begin to work in us the things you want to work in us. Begin to reveal to us the things you want to reveal to us that as we approach the table this morning, God, we do so as men and women who can come with a clean conscience, who can approach not in an unworthy manner, but God, in a manner where we desire to, to meet with you, to worship you through this precious ordinance of communion. So God, prepare us for this, we pray in Jesus' name.